Hi. Hello. I am Alexis Hyde. I'm Erica Wong. And we have today Eliza Easton. Welcome to Hyder Practice. for coming thank you for having me can you give our lovely listeners a little breakdown of who you are what you do and where you do it yes so my name is eliza easton you got that right um i am head of policy for the creative economy at a place called nesta which is sort of an innovation foundation is what we call call ourselves and then actually most of my work goes into something called the creative industries policy and evidence center so my specialism is policy around everything from kind of fine art through to design, film, architecture, advertising, technology. And I work with a big team of um, academics, data scientists, economists, to think about which policies best suit the needs of that sector of the economy. That's so awesome. <laughs> Super cool, right? So awesome. All that was, uh, was actually... So my, my background is um, so in history of art. So I studied history of art and then I was a curator for a year. And then I kind of saw what was happening in the art sector in the UK at, the mo- at that time and um, still is happening. And I wanted to work on the policy side. So that's kind of how I ended up getting into it that way. I love that. I love that. Do you, I have to ask, like, well, is this a good question to ask in the beginning or in the end of like how... How have things changed in the last six months in terms of policy? Like, have you guys been, has it been like, are these things that you, I mean, I don't think anyone could really be prepared for these things, but I'm sure there were some like, you know, catastrophizing in the past of like, what ifs, but um, I mean, how, how have things changed in the last six months? I mean, it's obviously been seismic. It's changed so much. Um, There are things that you can kind of look back on. So we've done a couple of pieces of research that look at the previous recession, Mm -hmm. kind of try and understand whether there are learnings from that. Um, But it's really difficult because actually the way people consume cultures changed as well as the amount of money people have. So it's not just talking about kind of an economic recession. It's talking about, you know, people cannot go to the theater. They cannot go and see live music in the way they were before. So there's a lot of uncharted um, territory. Um, But I suppose another thing that I've been really aware of is that the big questions have kind of remained the same, but they've been accelerated. So whether that's around, you know, the types of people who are able to actually work in the creative industries, whether that's about which parts of the country are kind of growing the fastest or the slowest, or whether that's about how we support kind of research and um, development in the creative industries. Actually, we've just seen the same patterns, but getting faster and more intense during this period. So that, I mean, one kind of tiny example would be about streaming and downloading. So we know that people have been moving towards streaming, Netflix, away from downloading stuff. That's changing where the money sits in the sector. But over lockdown, that went into hyperdrive. And we saw that from our research. We were kind of surveying a thousand kind of people who represented the country as a whole every week. You could see people were kind of streaming more and more. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's definitely changed things, but it might seem like everything's changed, but some, some things are just kind of changing in ways we already knew they would, but way faster than we expected. 
It's so interesting to me. I just like love the idea that like, I mean, it's, I don't love the idea. How about that? I, I, it, it makes me happy that people are still consuming art that you guys can see that like the things are people still want music they still want storytelling they still want those kinds of arts engagements and they're still seeking it out where they can during difficult times totally more than ever actually i mean we did a piece of research which looked at like how many hours people were spending doing this stuff and i mean you know think about my own life definitely i'm spending more hours than i ever have in lockdown whether it's you know uh just watching TV or watching films, um, you know, getting into either kind of really trashy stuff or like really, uh, you know, really intense um, foreign cinema that I would never normally watch. I think people have been exploring new ways of consuming content and that, and that's kind of exciting. At the same time, there's some stuff which you just can't do as well. Um, if you're not in person, you just don't get that buzz. So uh, it's it's that's why it's all different to other recessions. It's not that the demand has gone away in any in any sense. The demand is huge, but people are just not legally allowed to be doing it. Um, so that's kind of what we're trying to figure out how that will change things. Yeah, it's amazing. So if I can, um, I feel like a lot of times when we hear words like policy and cultural policy, it sounds like very is protecting one side of the conversation rather than for everyone. And I would just love to sort of know as somebody who has the in, sort of how you guys see that. Like, do you think that you're representing more of the government versus the mass public? Because I definitely get the feeling that as like a citizen, sometimes I don't think that policies necessarily actually protect me, is to go and more so safeguard the government. Mm. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So many people who work in the policy world and all of them have different interests um, and different things they want to achieve. You obviously have loads of civil servants. So those people do work for the government and they're thinking about how to achieve what the party in charge has set out to do. Um, but I, you have a lot of other people who are kind of thinking about different interest groups. And I suppose from where I come from, a lot of it is thinking about the, the industry. Where I'm coming from, a lot of actually uh, people are thinking about the industry, the people who work in the industry, but also the good that having a thriving arts and cultural sector can do for society as a whole. Um, so we do work which looks at well-being, impacts of arts and culture. Um, we try to think about how you make uh, the creative and cultural sectors more inclusive, made up of different people. Um, it's definitely a much broader range of issues than perhaps um, you would be looking at if you were uh, working as a kind of I don't know, government um, special advisor. But saying that, I think even policymakers are trying to think about how to get votes. So it's always a kind of circle in terms of appealing to the public. It's just where you come in that cycle and, and what you're what you're pushing for. The work that I do is, um, it's uh, the work we do at the Policy Eleven Centre is all done by independent academics. So that doesn't bring that lobbying energy. We're not out there telling people what to do because it benefits our business, um, which obviously happens. If you run a huge business, you're gonna have a policy person on staff who's trying to make sure nothing bad happens in terms of policy. But, but the stuff we do is much more thinking about actually what would be the optimum situation for the industry having said that 
with every piece of work, optimum can be described in a million different ways. So you're always making tough decisions. Um, but an interesting example would be around immigration. It's quite a controversial example. So we were asked by the government um, and by industry to try and get a sense of how many people were likely to be negatively affected by a changing immigration system kind of post-Brexit. So we did a piece of work that looked at that and spoke about the importance of self-employed people and what might happen to those people after Brexit and, and how they weren't necessarily having a route designed for them to stay in the UK, but how important they were to this sector. Um, for some people, even saying that is so controversial because they don't think there should be any immigration system. They believe in total global freedom of movement. So I suppose we do have to work within certain parameters, but we're also allowed to say kind of what whatever comes out of the evidence. We're not bound by anything any political party tells us, and we're not, you know, uh, working with any specific political party on anything. It's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned about how, you know, the investment of like, are in arts for culture, and you think about like the well-being of the people and how that can affect people positively. Do you think, and this is just a super selfish American thing, because I don't see that over here. Do you think that that is a different kind of point of view that you see more in Europe and England than you do in the States? I don't know how familiar you are with the States, but I just feel like that's not mm -hmm. something I, I rarely hear it when people are talking, unless it's like a local policy situation. It's a nonprofit and they're pushing for that. But on a, on a wider scale, I just don't see that kind of conversation happening in the States. I think that's a great question um, and actually I think it's pretty recent in the UK that we've started having these quest these kind of conversations sincerely um, the art sector has kind of always had these conversations I feel like there's you know when I worked at, um, at uh, the National Trust property that I worked at we were always thinking about what would bring joy to the people who are visiting it's part of what you do as a curator as an mm -hmm. artist um, but when it gets to kind of policy it's often been about economic benefit However, I think it's not just the arts that are having this conversation at the moment. And actually, the, the Treasury in the UK has um, relatively recently reviewed something called the Green Book, which is very nerdy to talk about. But in essence, it's judge whether policy <laughs> it's how we judge whether policies have been successful. And we're moving to way, away from just a kind of bottom line judgment. We're actually, as a kind of government, the UK, as a, in terms of our government, is starting to think about, okay, was it successful in terms of how happy it made people? What was the environmental impact? And I think that's particularly important for the arts because it was never the right argument to just be saying this stuff is important in terms of the economy, even though arts funding actually is quite important in terms of the economy in a whole bundle of ways, it's more important or it's also important in a whole load of other ways, which, um, we might not love to measure because it's difficult and time consuming. And when you're working as a curator, it's so boring to have to think about, you know, check boxes around well-being, whatever it might be. But it's really vital in getting people to understand how important this stuff is to the UK as a whole, not just in terms of kind of our, our you know, our GVA, our, our economic well-being, but our, you know, emotional well-being too. I love that, like just like a more holistic point of view. And yeah. I don't it's think... a slow move, though. It's, it's a slow, slow move. move. I'm not saying the government is getting it right over here, but I think a lot of it does come from kind of yeah. I think they're probably it is moving more quickly in Europe 
than in the US from my perspective I would say that that is probably true I think too that you from an economic point of view that you know if you're looking at the environmental compact and like the well-being impact like those would be things that would affect the economy positively if you're saving the environment a little bit now it's that like ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and same thing with well-being you know people are happier and they make better choices and they're better in their community you know that kind of like lifted spirit is better you know yeah i'm sure for a lot of you know i can't think of anything off the top of my head but like maybe someone's drinking less and they're they're healthier longer and yeah it's huge for i mean i've been kind of involved on and off with a move again towards social prescription in the uk which is the most medical side of this which is actually one way to get people healthier is to say you should join a book group or you know you should go to this music class um and that's really interesting but actually just broadly how important this stuff is as a kind of lifeline, especially for isolated people, especially for vulnerable people, especially at the moment, needs to be um, recognized. And I think that sometimes it's unfortunate that people can't do that just by looking out of their window, but people need the numbers to be able to persuade them of it. I remember once being asked, um, I was phoned by a journalist and they were I'm sure they were wonderful journalists but I could tell the story which they were trying to run because I was doing a piece of work at the time looking at um, the availability of housing for artists in London and um, they were sort of asking questions about artists versus other key workers and I would never claim that artists were key workers in the way that people working for the NHS are and I and I don't like being pushed into that argument at all um at the same time i think people understand that if you want an exciting thriving happy city you need to have people doing exciting uh things culturally as well as people who keep the very kind of fabric of the city going day to day um so it might not be frontline Um, But this stuff is definitely important in terms of kind of a city's health and also in terms of our individual health. I think we can also get quite snooty about it. So, you know, what is good for our health and what is bad for our health. But I know that sometimes a really good podcast, like this one, or really great music, or, um, you know, a really kind of just kind of, you know, exciting but silly bit of television can give me so much joy. And that stuff is a real you know lifeline too um and just to be again if we're gonna have to, if people want to bring it back to the economics of it like you know london specifically and like a lot of like major cities in europe also the tourism hub i mean i go to london right. to see theater i go to london to go to the tate and to go to the hayward like i have like i have the things that i have to take off and they're all arts i mean obviously i'm an arts person but even before um I was always, you know, focused on the arts of what London had to offer. And like, obviously the history, sure. I want to see the crown jewels. Um, Maybe Madame Tussauds. Don't judge me guys. Uh, But the, but those are also still cultural places and you are dealing with things and you are dealing with curation. You are dealing with history and education. And again, that's, you know, take my money, man. Take it. completely and you know you want to go to a city that feels like it's got stuff that's going on now as well as stuff which used to happen i think 
that's another really you can't live in your artistic past all the time you can show your artistic past but there's something different about going somewhere where it feels like people are creating now as well as were creating kind of 100 200 300 years ago it's like an ongoing story that you get to again with stories and with connections and human you know communication because it's through all of those things so in terms of policy, um, I also know that Nesta has a lot of grants for artists, for our listeners who are interested in understanding how they could potentially fit into grants. What sort of advice would you give? Because as a person who has applied for grants and did not get it, sometimes again, you're very frustrated because you're like, you feel you take it so personally right and it's really difficult to not take it personally because it's your studio practice and you're trying to put yourself out there and then you get rejected and you're just like oh you're such a piece of shit you know like why won't why won't you just give me the money like i love what i do um i'm not saying that everybody thinks that that's my (laughs) internal dialogue right there so in terms of um the funding that does come out from nesta Mm -hmm. What sort of um, what sort of candidate or applicants are you looking for? How do you match that um, scenario? That's a really good question. I suppose I can relate on the level of applying for research funding and not getting it. And you can't believe that anyone has written a better proposal than your team wrote. Um, but then you see the finished thing and you think, yeah, actually that is pretty good. Um, I, so my team uh, works much more on the policy and research side than the kind of investments and program side. But obviously, as we talk to them a lot. Um, Nesta has kind of a, a really interesting place in the kind of ecosystem in the UK in terms of arts funding, where um, we have a couple of kind of significant funds that we run, one of which is the Impact Investment Fund. So we actively uh, provide kind of loans to allow people to increase their impact across kind of a whole range of different metrics. So it might be that you want to show that you actually impact local health um, local health agenda. Uh, for example, you might be running um, dance classes for people with dementia. Um, there's a whole range on that side. It might be about uh, decreasing kind of social deprivation um, and it's giving loans to organizations that then allows them to kind of build facilities or build, um, uh, I don't know, they, they might be building a communications plan or whatever it might be to, to, get them to, to get them to be able to do that. So that's been kind of one of our most successful funds. Um, and it's interesting until the recent kind of bout of loans um, for COVID, it was, I think, one of the biggest in the world, maybe the second biggest, the other ones in the US um, that, that did provide that sort of thing. Um, and we always are kind of at the vanguard of, of projects. So we try as an organization which focuses on innovation to be setting up you know, smaller grants, trying things out and hoping that either we can run with them afterwards, like with the Impact Investment Fund or that other people will run with them. Um, in terms of uh, how to apply for the funds, I mean, it's, a, as I understand it, a, a complete movable piece, but I have to say, I'm nothing to do with it really in terms of choosing the individual organizations. Um, otherwise, I still probably wouldn't be allowed to say much. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I think that uh, for us, one thing that we've definitely learned 
um, is the importance of organizations being able to have kind of a basic understanding of data. Having worked in and around lots of arts organizations, that's just not a skill set that's necessarily there, especially in a really small arts organization. Why would you have someone who's you know really good at playing with data? You probably can't afford them anyway. Um, but also it's not something which, you know, I studied history of art. It certainly wasn't part of my degree. But I actually think that once you get to a point where you're applying for funding, people want to know more and more exactly what you want to do with that funding and especially when you're talking about something that's looking at different impacts so health impacts for example you're going to have to find a way to measure those impacts and that's definitely something that i think different arts organizations could consider when applying for those sorts of funds um, but obviously there are other funds that you know the arts council runs for example it's just on kind of artistic um you know excellence um and I definitely think there's a place for those as well. I wouldn't push all funding towards a kind of really strict metrics-based um, kind of People do like that though. Process. It's true. And I think it's because it gets pushed up. So, you know, when we're asking for money to get put into the arts world, whoever's giving you that money wants to know what was done with that money. And if you can say, this is the way it changed people's lives, then they're more likely to give more money in the future. Certainly when I'm working on a kind of at a sector level, um, advocating to the to the Treasury um, for, for funding for and have been advocating to the Treasury for funding for the arts, they want to understand why the arts are more important than putting money into defense or putting money into, you know, business recovery or whatever it might be. They're weighing up these impossible options. And if one sector says we just don't have the figures, but, you know, this stuff is wonderful it's easy for them to dismiss it. Um, at the same time, I do think that there is also a place for policy makers that just understand intrinsically the importance of having an arts, um, an arts kind of sector in the UK, because it, fundamentally it is difficult to provide enough numbers to convince something if that's not, if they don't see the importance of it in their life. I think that's still quite challenging. Um, little internal plug, guys. If you're an arts organization that needs a social scientist to help you with your numbers, um, Eric, Dr. Erica Wong is someone who can do that for you. So uh, hit her up and uh, pay her a bunch of money because she's real smart. Um, anyhow, <laughs> but I think that's it's really interesting what you brought up about like grants and things because it is very easy to take it personally. And as someone who is also traditionally on the admin side, I think about people who are, you know, applying to juried, you know, panels or applying to grants. Mm -hmm. And it's akin to, you know, applying to jobs. Like you really need to look and see what it is. What's the institution? Is it the city of Durham, North Carolina? Is it the arts council who's like looking for, you know, a romantic story to spend for their marketing? Is it somebody who needs the data? And you're going to have to apply accordingly the same way you would a job that like if I were going to apply to a job as a curator of the Museum of Narrative uh, Arts here in Los Angeles it'd be different than if I was applying to be the mm -hmm. director of a gallery um, you do have to 
see what the place is, what is their programming being. This is when like being in the habit of research on your own practice is really going to help. This is where being really you know, adept at talking about your art in different ways is going to help. And this is back to just like for people who've been listening for a while, when we talk about networking and outreach and your, and your people, when you have these conversations more often, you're able to adapt to new conversations about your work in different situations. Um, because I, I also, sorry, no, you finish. There you go. No, I was going to say, I, I, I'd also say that, yeah, there's a lot that, that kind of, I'm sure artists can do, but just, also over the period of kind of coronavirus pandemic lockdown lots of grants came up to help artists who are struggling and there was a piece of work that was done in in the u.s actually um that looked at kind of average amount those grants were and it was something like a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars which is insane you can barely for the amount of time it would take to do a good grant application it would already become basically irrelevant if you're thinking exactly. about the bills of an artist that's living in New York. That's not going to tie them over at all. And so there is also, I think, a, a quite a hard conversation that needs to be had, especially with philanthropists who want to do the right thing and want to help as many people as possible, that actually just being able to say, going back to that idea of how kind of tantalizing numbers are, it's so great to be able to say, I helped you know, 40,000 artists, but actually if you've helped 40,000 artists with a hundred dollars each, it's, it might, it's paid for, you know, probably a, a few dinners and something that needed to be done, like the boiler had gone, maybe right. if no, you're able um, to stretch it. That's that not a cell phone bill. Really, it's not really sustaining yeah. a sector. And so I it's, think there does need to be a conversation about actually what Especially when you're talking about how much effort it takes to put one together. There was a grant that I did like on Instagram where it was only $500, but all you had to do to submit was post a photo on your Instagram and tag it. Hmm. That is a very easy entryway. Uh, And that's completely, you know, egalitarian in terms of people who have access Hmm. to that. And the return on that investment of time is substantial. But yeah, if I have to put together a PDF and a 500 word blurb for a hundred bucks, it's like, oh, that's, that's really disappointing to hear. Um, so that person could be spending that time thinking about, well, there might not be that many options at the moment, but taking the coronavirus thing out of the picture for a second, I think it's possible that person could be spending time thinking about how to actually, I don't know, they make their business more sustainable, for example. If they're spending that time always chasing the next $100, $250, that's not really going to help that individual develop a practice that they can right. sustain. And yeah, I think it's slightly different in a crisis, but I still think the people I've spoken to in the US for sure have been having some some, some conversations with um, with funders to say this is not a good way of supporting a obviously struggling sector yeah, um, we have to be able to provide more support, more concentrated support, and ask less time of people to allow them to at least do what they can, whilst you know, gallery spaces are closed, live music places are closed, etc. Absolutely, I think there's also the thing, and this isn't like, this it's hard. It's hard to be rejected. I've been rejected a lot, and I will be have my feelings hurt the next time I'm rejected. Also, but you know, not every grants for every artist. And not just the same way, not every gallery is for every artist. 
Um, and it's okay to not apply also. Like if you look at it and you think that it's not a great fit, like exactly what you're saying, like how are you investing your time? Because that is also your practice. Like how are you, is your time better served applying for this grant that might be a far reach because you don't really do, you know, static 2D work for a hospital, mm. but it, maybe it's better to look into outreach to other, you know, people in that do respond to the kind of work that you do. Uh, if mm. you're going to end up spending five hours on it, like that's five hours you could have spent in a, in a potentially more proactive. And it's hard to make those decisions. It's a tough call, but it's a good thing to think about. So how are the numbers assigned? Like you're saying <clears throat> grants, like the average grant is $100 in the US. Like how did that how do I happen? Yeah. How does it come about saying that like this grant, it's mm -hmm. only like this much money because you know, when you're reading the report is the government gives large sums of money, like large sums of money to organizations. So to, for it to be dispersed. Yes. And yet so somehow I, when it comes down, it's like so little, like what has actually happened for that to happen? Administrative fees, people getting paid on the back end. Sorry. I think that's true, but I also I should say, so I think the grants that are given via in the UK, so via kind of um, arm's length organizations. So that might be the Arts Council, the British Film Institute. Um, they are going to be probably much more significant. The US, uh, the US example I gave was private, mostly like there's a much greater culture of philanthropy, which has this whole own bunch of questions. Because our government won't do it. <laughs> So, like, why is that? Is that a good thing? We can chat about that. It's a bit. not. It should be both. <laughs> but yeah, so there's so so that in the US, there's all these like philanthropists who obviously wanted to step in to support the art sector, and I think that's when this happened, where people wanted to support numbers, but they didn't necessarily realize that giving out quite small grants between like a hundred and kind of a thousand dollars was not necessarily gonna be able to sustain people for the time they would need to be sustained. In the UK. Um, the majority of kind of bailout funding was in this big chunk of money that was given by the UK government to uh, kind of various arm's length bodies. They were already set up to give out grants anyway, which was a huge advantage. So if you've already got an arts council, however many problems you may have with the way the arts council gives out money, who they give it to, they at least know physically how to give out money, like how to put it in accounts, what that means. They have people who specialize in that. So they don't have to hire in huge numbers of new people. They know vaguely how to assess whether something is a real claim or whether it's a bit dodgy. Um, they know the people in the organizations. Again, pluses and minuses to that. But I think it's an advantage in terms of speed. The same with the British Film Institute. They're in constant contact with the cinemas. Um, they know people who work in independent film. They know what, like when, which productions have stopped. They're totally on top of that. So then they actually have an advantage in terms of not having to bring in a load of new people um, to kind of work on this stuff. Although I know people I know who work at both of those institutions have probably had a weird, 
imagine a weird kind of COVID workload where it's kind of been kind of low and not much happening and everything shut down to giving out more money than they've ever given out in their lives. Um, the other thing that's new, which I will be watching with great interest, um, is I mentioned that Nesta has given loans to arts organizations and that has its whole own bunch of risks associated with it and is is difficult to do and has also big rewards potentially if you can do it properly and you can actually support people to be able to grow their businesses and for us it's more payback if you can um as opposed to kind of like harsh bailiffs knocking at arts organizations doors um but it obviously means that then an organization can give out a lot more money if they're expecting to get at least some of it back it will be interesting to see some of these arms legs organizations who've only ever given out grants go through that process because i think we've learned at nesta that there are you have to approach it in a, in a different way and that goes back also to, to kind of the conversation about numbers and data if you're giving a grant yes you want and you probably if you've applied for arts council funding and got it you know you have to do loads of paperwork at the end to say this is what happened with a loan You've got to provide even more information, especially if it's based on something like health impacts. You've got to be able to provide a lot of information to the people who gave you the money. Um, and so again, it'll just be really interesting um, to see how kind of the government handles that. I and mean, I'm saying interesting, but obviously Ernesto will be talking to people and hoping to advise them using our experience. So I'm not kind of watching cruelly from the sidelines, letting them get on with it we're chatting to these people already but yeah i imagine that'll be the biggest challenge in the uk um in the us yeah as you said it's a different setup in terms of how many grants are offered and also how important philanthropic organizations are in terms of basically having to sustain the industry at this point as i understand it that's interesting because having a business model to say that payback if you can rather than it's <laughs> mandated it's like mm, that doesn't really sound like it's a really good return on investment i I'll could probably be, wrong. be killed for saying that but I it's happening it's in the good. states too though there's happening there where it's like we're hoping you can pay it back but like it's not going to be so firm and it is kind of it's like are people going to be like operating in good faith enough to pay back but i guess there's going to have to be some repercussions if they really do survive this and thrive it'll be like pretty obvious in their tax returns that you could have been paying back this loan <laughs> yeah oh, fair enough fair enough and i suppose the other option is that for us this sits along grant funding so it's not that it would be so actually it's much closer to grant funding than it is to a kind of traditional loan where it's very much trying to support people with more money in the hope that people can pay back and actually increase their impact and you can carry on investing in organizations and helping them to grow maybe that's the best way to think about it rather than a traditional loan where you're kind of out of money it's from the same organizations that would have provided grants traditionally so it's hoping to allow them to do more with a grant by getting some of it back if if the impacts are successful if that makes sense no, it does. And I think, you know, from a lot of the um, the numbers that are coming out, because now that, you know, we've been in lockdown for six months, not to say that we're not going back directly into lockdown very soon. Um, however, today on The Guardian, there was this article that said 
the RAs of the Royal Academy, the choice was that they either had to sack 150 employees or they had to sell a Michelangelo. Sell the fucking Michelangelo. So it's, you know, I think... It's just such so awkward when those when you're seeing this like and how jarring and distressing the news is is like thirty percent of the like museums are never going to recover. They're just going mm. to be gone. Like you either get to sack people or you get to keep a Michelangelo and so the it's like, Michelangelo. <laughs> yes, but like how do you you know, like, how do you, it's, I don't know, maybe it's not Sophie's choice, but it's, it is difficult and it's jarring when you read these types of reports. No, Alexis does not agree. <laughs> I don't, I don't, sorry. I'm trying to keep myself contained. I, this is such a, this is a conversation I've been having way pre-COVID. I don't physically understand. And this is, I will go, I will go toe to toe with like fucking Christopher Knight on this. Who's the, you know, a very well-respected Pulitzer Prize winning critic at LA Times. I don't think the accessioning should be so fucking controversial because like, I'm yeah. sorry, all of those people are worth more than a Michelangelo to me. You wouldn't have access to that fucking Michelangelo if you didn't have people supporting it and cleaning the space and being your security and checking you in and giving you your fucking postcards. You wouldn't have it if you, I mean, what's the fucking point of having a Michelangelo if you can't even like get in? Also, all of these institutions should be serving the public and part of that public they are serving, the reason they don't have to pay this many taxes, the reason they get access to fucking grants is because they're serving the public. That includes your fucking employees. Also, whoever the fuck's gonna buy that goddamn Michelangelo, they're probably gonna fucking donate it to another museum later for tax write-offs. Like, or load it to the fucking exhibitions. Like, these things aren't going away. And like, as somebody who's run a space, like the budget things are real. And like a cup, you know, I just, I don't know. I guess I just think like, yes, the Michelangelo is important, but like also. So are human beings. So are human beings. Mm -hmm. And if the museum closes, then what's the fucking point? Like, if you can't support, if you can't run the museum, then you don't get the Michelangelo anyway. So like sell the fucking Rothkos, like sell them, like literally like, like full on Christopher Wool, sell the house, sell the kids, sell the dog, like just like fucking do it. If it's what's going to have to like get the people in. I mean, I know, but, and I know when they do this, it's to make it look harsh. And it's, uh, it's like, well, which is the one? And to me, the answer is always going to be the fucking employees. Like the art's important, but like without the people who are literally getting, you know, underpaid and overworked to like help us understand why the Michelangelo is important what's the fucking point and now I will step off of my soapbox and I will let you finish your point and I'm gonna have I'm gonna put myself on mute and I'm gonna have a sip of water because my god Alexis you fucking I'm sorry I just have I have so many feelings Dude, it's fine to have feelings yeah anyway I was the point of what I was trying to say is that it obviously for headline news is to go and get people to be distressed and to think that culture is disappearing. But ironically, people cut funding the first in the arts. Yeah. Mm. And I think for somebody who operates in the arts, I always think, so what do you want then? Because you're cutting funding you're saying that we don't matter, but every single time when there's some sort of a campaign, you bring culture to the very top. And yet again, when in a time of uncertainty, 
then you're saying, oh, museums, they never happen ever again. You know, no one's actually wanting to go to the National Gallery. And it's like, yeah, well, then, you know, like I don't really understand for governments or for journalism or whichever like noun I should be using here. Like, what do you want? You know, as a, as a human being in the public, I just feel like make up your mind. Mm. Do, you, do you mean policymakers always? Policy, I don't. I mean, I think sometimes are. I wonder, like policymakers, it's like on the media. Whose side are you on? Are you on our side? Are you on like the government side? And it's, but it's like the money is coming from the government, which is, by the way, taxpayers' money. There we go. This is where <laughs> I'm coming from. Like, you know, and I, I try to sit here and not pull all my hair out in the corner yeah. of my room thinking it's like this is such a vicious cycle because it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere because it's like it's the government's money, but it's like actually no, it's my money. Mm. You taxed me for that money. And yet I don't have access to it or it's gone somewhere else. And mm. as a person who's in the arts, I'm just like, I just I think I'm just going to sit in the corner and because it's now super frustrating for me and I'm going to be bold at this rate that I'm going to think about this so hard. And I prefer to not be bold and maybe I shouldn't think so hard about it. I think, no, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely been a frustration of mine as well that often... You know, I, I think I, I often say that you see um, UK politicians abroad and everything they talk about is UK culture. It's all stuff which was mostly state funded at some point or at least is state funded now. Um, and then they come home and they barely mention it. I mean, we want to do a piece of analysis looking at how many times people, different politicians have ever mentioned the arts or creative industries in any speech in government. I think it was when we had the conservative leadership race and it was just a, it was just really surprising how rarely any of this is mentioned. Uh, having said that, I guess the thing that you always come across in, um, in government is that so much is essential. So much stuff is so important. And you're always being asked that question, is this more important than the National Health Service? That's the one that you get asked the most. I mentioned that the press asked that. And I think for me, it's about understanding that you obviously need huge numbers of different areas to be invested in to make a kind of working, happy, healthy society. And you can't always make the arts um, the bottom of the list. More than that, it is such a minuscule part of the budget that cutting it is almost irrelevant because it already makes up so little of the money you spend year on year. Mm -hmm. That's what so happens that's in the States too. And I'm just like, I'm like, they're like, we're going to cut the NEA. And I'm like, this is nothing. This is nothing. literally, it's like a dollar if you it's have like a so thousand little. bucks. It's like, and not even a thousand, if you have $5,000, you're like, I'm saving this dollar. And it's like, and I actually don't think there's definitely some people who in, in policy MPs who are not interested for whatever reason in building, preserving the art sector here. Um, but I think most people are kind of, you know, pro, they want it to exist, but especially at a time of you know, austerity, people wanted to be seen to be cutting things. Um, you always get headlines about funding for lovies, which is what, I don't know if they use that term in the, do they use that term in the US? Nope. So lovies is like a term to mean, but I guess like middle-class people who work in the arts, Hollywood actors, um, anyone who's kind of, I don't know, uh, might give you three kisses on the cheek when they meet you, 
call you darling. It's quite an old that. term. This is like fantastic. It's like calling, call you darling or honey, but probably don't know your name. Every night is at a different party. Yeah, so that's lovey. And it's, I think there's a kind of uh, this weird hatred sometimes between um, the kind of political sphere and the loveys. And um, that sometimes plays out in policy. But again, it's frustrating because the way that arts funding actually manifests now is, yes, of course, supporting things like the Royal Opera House National Gallery, but it's also supporting loads of um, regional uh, theatres, regional art galleries, stuff up and down the UK that matter hugely to people's daily lives, but probably no one the government would consider a lobby has ever been to. Um, so that's a frustration for me. The other thing that happened, which is not, I don't think was a purposeful cutting of the arts, but probably the thing that got me into working in policy from actually working as a curator, was um, when we had huge cuts to uh, kind of local authority budgets in the UK, um, they were pushed to almost nothing during kind of the, the austerity period. And they were in effect forced to cut their own local arts funding. I don't think the government's intention was to get everyone to cut their local arts projects and some local authorities amazingly kept things going even though their budgets were tiny. They made it a priority and they made it work. But for very understandable reasons, a lot of people got rid of their member of staff, which would have been a local um, arts officer. So that person would have linked up like schools and galleries, schools and local museums. Those people mostly went. And so many libraries, local libraries, local galleries, local museums shut. Um, and again, like some of these things are, I think, most frustrating because I don't believe there's a conspiracy having seen the inner workings of it. It's just people forget this stuff when they make the policy. And then they think, actually, oh, we didn't mean for, you know, the Arts Council will then try to come in to save some of these organizations, but they can't make up the huge shortfall, which is caused by a policy which didn't have anything to do with the arts when it was conceived at national government. So I think that's some of the work that I do that's most frustrating when it almost feels like not that the arts is last in the queue or even this kind of lovies versus politicos argument when it's just like you forgot that it existed. So then something terrible happened. So I think a lot of my work is just trying to make sure that there's good quality evidence so that the arts and the wider creative sectors part of the debate when they need to be so like whether that's around you know new trade um new trade regulations um and how we're going to be able to trade in the future post-brexit making sure that actually they're thinking about how this stuff is going to work for the creative industries as well as for like the automotive sector which by the way is tiny compared to the creative industries this is like a huge economic sector. That's the one that happens in the States. It's, so it's like, crazy. let's talk about the coal workers. And I'm like, but then you're like, yeah. fuck the multi-trillion dollar yeah. industry of the creatives that you're just like. I have, a, I have a theory about this, which I've got no evidence for really. But I think, so I did an economics course um, and uh, we were studying, and I, yeah, I was learning about economics and I did it because most of my team were economists and like always loved maths. I've never formally studied economics. Um, and it was brilliant, but we got to the bit about the arts. I say the bit about the arts. We got to a page that mentioned the arts and <laughs> teacher said, the teacher basically said, the professor said, you know, oh, it's complicated. It's kind of a public good. We don't really need to look at that. And we just moved on and we never spoke about any of the, anything to do with the creative industries, arts again, 
all the industries we looked at were based on the economy as it was in the 1980s. And that is because people started, you know, writing the books which have been so influential, influential in the 1980s. And so we're basically dealing with an entire generation of economists, of especially politicians, who act like the economy hasn't changed, when in fact, we know this stuff is less so like fine art, but certainly design, film, architecture, advertising, the tech sector. We obviously need to be thinking about this in terms of our policy, but it's still forgotten because people are imagining their textbooks from when they're, they were, you know, I don't know, 19 and studying economics at university and it was the coal industry, the car industry. Um, Which is funny because you know they all still went and saw cats because if they hadn't seen cats, cats wouldn't have still been going on. (laughs) That's the part that always is so confusing to me. They're like, it's not important. I was like, fuck you, dude. I saw on your gram that you went and saw Hamilton. Yeah. Don't pretend. Like, you don't do these things. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I've had some very interesting conversations with politicians over the years where we've been talking about whether the arts are important. And then in this very same conversation, Having said, you know, but this stuff isn't a priority. They talk about what they're reading at the moment, what they're watching on television. And I think it's just, it's not just politicians. It's also friends of mine. It's also, you know, it's, I don't think it's a unique political problem, but it's just that people want to see this as the fun side. They used to call um, the Department of the Digital Culture, Media and Sport, the Ministry of Fun, which is fine (laughs) as a nickname, but I don't think it helped people to understand that actually there's serious policy work that needs to happen in this area to actually support people to allow us to do the kind of stuff we want to as a as a country no oh, it makes sure. me so angry it makes me like literally <laughs> so angry to, and that's actually a large part of why I did the the research was because there was this one piece of news and i think the federation of create the creative federation Federation. yeah they were just like um the creative sector in the uk is one of the few industries that is growing by a a double digit per annum Mm. and i was like okay but like if you look at it on a on a whole why is the funding so little and why is it that it's so hard for artists to actually be in the industry then? Mm-hmm. If you're saying that it grows this much, and I think at the time, I can't remember, it was like 15 billion pounds or something like that. And I was like, none of these numbers actually match up. Mm-hmm. So something is being skewed, even as a person who at the time hadn't done any like data training i was just like this doesn't even make sense and yet i feel like you are using creativity or the arts as a marketing campaign and it's insulting to me Mm -hmm. because i love the arts and it's so insulting to me and my intelligence and the work that i've put in for the industry for this to just be passed off as a marketing campaign Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of people who work in this industry and we put in the hours and we put in the work because we love it not because you could just use it as you know a slogan it's like oh my god this yeah. is, it makes me just like it makes my blood boil because it's just like 
which is so funny because in America we have the exact opposite problem where everyone's advertising that we don't need any arts we don't have any culture it doesn't matter because like it's the steel industry the coal industry whatever and we're you know it doesn't matter and then I'm like how dare you like insulting people because like think about like my grandmother who's from Liberty Texas you cannot point that shit out on a map even if you're from Texas and I know that because I'm from Texas and I can't find it on a map and when I talk about like their cult, their regional theater of like their little Liberty Texas like theater group like that was so vital to this little town of and no offense I'd say it to, well I don't know if I'd say it to my grandmother's face because I don't want her to get mad at me but like some fucking rednecks but this is what people are doing you know and they still care about those things they still care about their couch looking pretty and they go and shop for you know the pretty stuff and that have their things in the house and there's artists in the neighborhood who are painting each other's houses on commission like these are things that happen in Liberty Texas mm-hmm. and then you have politicians in Texas being like F the arts so it's just like like these are the people, you know, who are also working on the motherfucking railroad and in the fucking prisons. And they're still engaging in these kinds of things. Yeah. And it's insulting in that way here. And it's just funny because I, I would rather have your problem, but um, but I think it actually it's, it's greener on the other side of the fence, right? Totally, and I think it goes back to this thing that the arts being seen as a kind of elite that policymakers almost want to you know want to damn them Hollywood I think has been particularly like that where everyone loves to laugh at Hollywood and that gives this kind of idea of you know the equivalent of the lovies right the US version Um, in terms of the economic stuff interesting because I think people yes the creative industry as a whole is worth like 110 billion pounds a year it is huge it's more I mean it's yeah it's worth more than I said like the car industry life sciences oil and gas for the UK it's massive within that the arts like the kind of art arts as you might um, as you might um, define them are going to be much smaller Um, and 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 I think that sometimes we get to a point where we're almost like exchanging numbers up and it can become a kind of race for who can claim the biggest number Um, but the reality is that whether you're looking at just the arts amount or the whole creative industries, it's hugely economically important. And as I said earlier, it's vital for the like life of the UK as we know it and as it will be in the future. Like we want this stuff to exist. And so we've got to be able to support it. Um, so I think it's, yeah, we try to be careful in terms of how we separate it out, but you're always looking at different mixes anyway. Like you said, whether you're thinking about kind of designers and architects and how they affect how cities work or whether you're thinking about how you know fine artists musicians piece of work we did recently said that music was the most important thing in improving people's well-being in lockdown um i can certainly understand why it helps you to escape especially when you're kind of shut up in four walls um so yeah i think i would definitely kind of uh, yeah i would definitely say that regardless of the huge economic impact of this stuff, we need to be expressing reasons for supporting it. I think that this also explains, or not explains, but reinforces our mission as a podcast of getting people to understand that the economy of the arts is more than just the people, you know, that there's so many different things that go through it. Because I always, I think about my brother builds sets for movies and Broadway in New York. Like, I know the guys he's working with because he'll tell me stories about them. And it's not who you think, you know? Like, yes, he went to CalArts and, like, 
but it's like the guys who are you know putting the electricity in they're just electricians they're just carpenters you know it's just like regular red-blooded american folks and you know these are the people who are affected and I don't even think honestly that sometimes they even realize because of the way we advertise art supporting of like money. It's like, you just think of, and then I think also the journalism of like, well, this piece went for a hundred million dollars or this went for $50 million or this is what, you know, you think about like how much uh, an Avengers movie makes, but if you sit back and you look at the credits of how many people were involved in making that, you know, you're talking about like 5,000 people. <laughs> Um, it's like a full city, like a full small t- city of people who like it takes to make one movie. Like, yes, Chris Evans got paid quite a bit of money or Robert Downey Jr. for sure. And that's just the movie. And that doesn't include the people who are designing the dolls and the lunch boxes and the t-shirts and things that go along with it. And like the, the economy is so much bigger than just like me being an asshole and like elitist as fuck, you know, trying to sell some, art from david swerner um it's not just complete that uh, the celebrities at the front of the film aren't the majority of people working on the film like just mm-hmm. that fact should make us rethink who we consider working in the creative industries not to say that they're like a particularly diverse sector and we've done a load of work looking at who has the opportunity to work in them and why and different bits are very different whether you're looking at advertising or whether you're looking at um, you know, television, uh, it changes hugely the kind of makeup of, of people in the sector. But yeah, I think fundamentally we can get into this idea that it's all just kind of lobbies and that misunderstands the actual work. You need to get most of the stuff off the ground. Um, I think though, one, I don't know if this is cause for optimism, but maybe it is. One thing that I've really noticed uh, during kind of the pandemic has been that because when um, government was trying to support individual workers so many people in the creative industries were not in a structure of work which the government understood i think it has actually been quite a significant wake-up call to people working in uh, the different departments especially the treasury and number 10 and the department of business that they actually need to get on top of what the working structures are for the sector and that's forcing them to realize how big the sector is um, because they have to think about how many people to support and how to support them. So film is a great example where um, you don't just have a film company that works on say Avengers and then exactly the same group of people go off and work on um, you know, Mean Girls 4. Uh, you have um, everyone changes because you need different actors, you need different specialists in lighting, you need people who design different kinds of clothes, different kinds of sets. So you have this almost accordion shape that films take. Uh, the way that policy interacts with businesses is expecting them to be one size and they grow. So you know you have 10 people the first year, 20 people the second year, and hopefully you have 1,000 people by year five. It's never going to look like that in film. And so I think there is a kind of wake up that crisis like um, the pandemic uh, forces government to have to actually look again at the economy think about who is genuinely making up the economy, what the structures of those businesses are, and hopefully that will change longer term how they're supporting those businesses as well and how they're able to support the people who work in those businesses. So we're not kind of the forgotten sibling of industry. So that the creative industries is actually understood as one of the largest sectors in the UK economy, rather than kind of a surprising 
a surprising kind of a surprising sector that no one really understands. It literally blows my mind. What have you been reading, writing, listening, watching to this week? Good question. Um, so I've been reading, so there's a book by Lindsay Hilson, which is called In Extremists, which is a um, biography of the war reporter, um, Mary Colvin, which I would hugely recommend. It's amazing, um, takes you all around the world, uh, completely made me realize how little I knew about some of the biggest conflicts that have happened kind of in my lifetime, um, but also an amazing story of a kind of extraordinary individual who uh, was uh, kind of first of her kind and probably kind of last of her kind as well in terms of the type of reporting she did. So that's been brilliant read. I've also been reading more slowly a book called um, Ruskin Land. Um, so I'm a huge uh, John Ruskin, I don't know if enthusiast is the right word, but I think that the kind of his philosophy um, in the 19th century is something that actually applies a lot to how the kind of world we're experiencing today and the way that he understood how arts and economics interacted and he was able to see it as a kind of whole ecosystem and not as two different worlds playing out separately. The way he applied kind of art theory to politics and how that was listened to, I find completely fascinating. And then um, it's not necessarily looking at, but I just bought a print by a British photographer called uh, Lottie Davies um, a couple of months ago. And I met Lottie years and years ago. I actually went camping with her. I used to do this. Uh, I used to um, go and kind of look after kids on a, on a camp. And so did she. Um, and I've always loved her photography. And there was a big sale to raise money um, for a charity during uh, kind of the COVID pandemic. And I bought a beautiful print by her. So I'd really recommend people checking her stuff out. That's wonderful. Amazing. I love that. You're the first person to mention that they that a piece of art that they bought. And that makes me really happy. <laughs> well, I've been looking at it a lot. So I've been sitting Good. in my flat. Yeah, getting Is it out. I've just taken it to the framers, actually. And they said they've never had a bigger backlog, which made me quite optimistic about the number of people who were buying art. That's so really that wonderful. Was, that was a great piece of news that this like kind of local framers to me um, in Hackney said, yeah, we're not going to be able to get back to you for six weeks. And they were probably surprised that I look so happy. <laughs> yeah. They're like, what? Like, yes. Great. I know. I swear. Sometimes when galleries, I got an email yesterday from a gallery because I was asked them, I knew that the show would be sold out. And I was like, is the show sold out? And she's like, I'm sorry it is. I was like, no, this is great news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, what? And I'm like, no, totally. this is good. I'm happy that it's sold out. I mean, it's a bummer for me trying to get something to a client, but hell yeah dude sell out your show never be yeah. sad about that i completely awesome. agree i actually went to see the country house that i used to work at um just the outside during the pandemic i drove there um with my boyfriend and yeah it was pretty much sold out we got the last ticket and it was so exciting to see well one i hadn't seen anyone so it was weird to see people kind of traipsing around these big gardens um but yeah it was just so cool to think that people were really wanting to do this stuff and that goes back to that thing that the demand is still there so yes we're in terrible the sector's in a terrible situation um, but I'm hopeful that because the demand is so strong, there might be kind of light at the end of the tunnel. 
What a good place to end. I know. This is so great. <laughs> so heartening. Kind of optimistic. Um, Eliza, where can our listeners find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, come and have a look at my Twitter. That's probably the yes. best place. It's very um, art and creative industries focused, but with occasionally like terrible, terrible jokes. Um, which never get any retweets. <laughs> and then all my boring, um, not boring, but interesting creative industries work stuff um, is probably better to check out than the terrible jokes. But yeah, at Eliza Easton, that's my okay. name. I'll include that in the blurb. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for your time. Bye. Bye.